You guys want to finish in Nehemiah this morning? Let's do it. Nehemiah 13. Let's get into it. We've been working through Nehemiah um, all summer, 13 chapters, and uh, I am excited to move on. Nehemiah, it's been real, but we're moving on. Actually, it has been quite good. I've never, I've never taken such a deep dive into the book of Nehemiah, and I have to say, it's, it's been good. It's been really good for me. We're going to read a few like excerpts, snapshots, out of uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, we simply wouldn't have enough time to read through the, the entire chapter. But basically, this last chapter, um, it's, in most of our Bibles, entitled Nehemiah's Reforms. So not only have they renovated the city, the wall, they're, they're doing a renovation of, of themselves, of the community. God is working on his people and so where they have lost their way, where they have begun to worship other gods or idols, as we say, as opposed to God, um, God is wanting to, to get them back on track, address some, some things, deal with some issues, and, and help them to, uh, to remember, look, you're my people, trust me, live, live my way, and, uh, and see how good I am. Um, but occasionally, God's people, we do lose our way, and so God will bring a person or just sometimes call up an audible and begin to work on our lives and mix things up and, and remind us of how good he is so that we can turn to him again. So this is what's happening in the last chapter. In fact, it starts out, it's a bit of a flashback. Nehemiah talks about when he first arrived in Jerusalem. Apparently, he, he finds that the inner sanctuary of the temple is being used by someone as like their personal living quarters. They basically set up shop um, in the temple. And Nehemiah is um, upset. I was going to use another word, but he was upset, very upset. And so he deals with that, and, and as he's beginning to sort of like assess, like, where are we at? Now, I know things have gone terribly wrong. We've been deported. We're, we're living as exiles in Babylon, but now we're beginning to rebuild here. And, and like, what, what's the status? How are we doing? He realizes that people aren't, they, they've completely disregarded the way that they're meant to, to live and worship and be God's people. It's his special people. Um, they're no longer honoring the Sabbath, which in that time was a really, really big deal. Um, right from the very outset, God created this world that we live in. Creation itself was meant to sort of flourish in a rhythm. And God's people were to, uh, to experience this, model this for whoever might be looking on, the, every, uh, the other nations. Um, and, and they would rest. Rest was supposed to be a big part of being God's people. But they weren't doing it. They were just like business as usual. Um, they were beginning to sort of mingle with the neighboring nations. Now this gets a little tricky to unpack, but a part of the way that God's people were to be set apart, special, holy, they weren't supposed to marry outside of Israel. Um, because if they did, they would end up worshiping the gods of the neighboring nations. 
And on face value, it just looks like xenophobia, basically. Xenophobia at best, racism at worst, but probably more something akin to xenophobia, but not really even that. It's a, it's a very ancient context, one that we don't really have a parallel category for, but however you understand it, when you read it, it just looks really, really bad. And so Nehemiah is addressing all of these issues. Now let me read to you a few excerpts, like what he does, how he responds, and the things he says. We'll start in uh, verse 8. This is when he realizes that Tobias has set up an apartment in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. Not too bad. He was angry. He literally went in, picked up furniture, threw it out of the temple. Verse 17, talking about the Sabbath. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day? Verse 20, then the merchants and the sellers of all kind of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem on the Sabbath once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's what we call the fivefold ministry. Laying of hands, swiftly, repeatedly. Verse 25. He's talking about those who had basically intermarried. And he says, And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying you shall not give your daughters to their sons or to take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. This is violent. Nehemiah, um, he's kind of lost it. He's kind of lost it. This is what you, what you call aggressive reform. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? It reminds me of when Jesus entered the temple. This is actually quite ironic, particularly in light of the verse we just read. Jesus goes into the temple about 500 years later. He looks around. There's a bunch of people who set up uh, money exchanging booths. If you're going to purchase sacrifices to, to worship in the temple, in this temple in Jerusalem. If you were a foreigner, you, you were welcome in, but you had, to, you had to be cleansed, and then you had to use special temple currency because anything other than the special currency also would have been considered unclean. And so there were foreigners wanting to come in and participate in the worship of Yahweh, this, this God that the Jewish people worshiped. Jesus walks in, he looks around, and what he recognizes is that these money exchangers, they weren't really doing anyone a favor. In fact, what they had done, I don't know if this was their intention, God only knows, but what they had done is to create this elaborate system that was actually keeping people out. They were creating hurdles 
which should have been like God's people inviting the nations in to be blessed, they're creating walls to keep them out. And it made Jesus mad. He literally began to flip tables over and he drove the money changers out. Quite aggressive. Let's back up just a little bit. Verse 22. Then I commanded, that is, Nehemiah commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he said, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I'm sorry, that's just slightly, um, I don't know, ironic. I mean, he's like pulling out people's hair threatening to beat people up and say, but Lord, remember me in your steadfast loving kindness. You're so good. You're so merciful. Just, just, just remember me. Interesting. What do we make of this? Nehemiah goes on a reformation rampage and then he appoints guards at the gate to keep all the impure rabble out. This is actually a great example of why the Old Testament isn't the end of the story. God is God. His nature, his character, his ways, they they don't change. But the story is not over. And it it illustrates the fact that if this is it, if this is like, if this is the, the pinnacle of like the reform, the wall's been built, the temple's been cleansed, they're singing the songs, they're preaching the word, and if this is how it ends, then something's not quite right. Thankfully, uh, there's much, much more to the story. This is one of the great and tragic themes of the Old Testament. This idea that God's people... They were, they were to be a blessed people. And through God's people, they were meant to bless the world. This was God's vision from the outset. But instead of being a blessing to others, to the neighboring nations, what they would do over and over and over again is create systems where certain people were in and other people were out. And then there was the gatekeepers. Not God's vision. Not God's heart. There's more to the story. Do you guys remember um, the great, late, great theologian, Dr. Seuss? Did you ever read The Sneetches? This is what I have coined as Sneechology. Let me read this to you and tell me if Dr. Seuss doesn't just have a revelation. Now, the star belly Sneeches had bellies with stars. Plain belly Sneeches had none upon ours. Those stars weren't so big They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. 
But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag were the best kind of sneech on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And wherever they met some, whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd saunter straight past them without even talking. When the star-belly children went out to play, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play if your bellies had stars and the plain belly children had none upon ours. And as you keep reading, you realize that there were the tri- these tribes forming those with stars and those without um, identity markers, if you will. Eventually, another character enters the narrative. His name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. You guys remember this? He's the guy who figures out how to, uh, how to spin the, the situation. He figures out how to politicize it and make some money off the whole uh, controversy, the whole star controversy. Because everyone wants to be in, but you need the identity marker in order to be included. And so Sylvester McMonkey McBean has a machine that gives everyone a star, only eventually everyone has a star. And then those who once had stars realize, well, now there's no one out, so we need to take our stars off so we can flip this whole thing on its head and and continue on with this system of excluding some for the sake of others. Of course, there's always a gatekeeper in between. Isn't this fascinating? This is what's happening in the end of Nehemiah. There are some who are in, others who are out, and then those few who are appointed to be the gatekeepers to make sure all the impure rabble were left out. Eventually, everyone gets crushed under the weight of the system. Everyone gets exploited. Everyone ends up getting chewed up and spit out by this system of of keeping up appearances, either having the right identity marker or getting the right one or becoming the gatekeeper, somehow figuring out how do I get in so I'm not left out. And it's this system, it's a broken system, it's a quote-unquote worldly system, it's a legal system that eventually, whether you're in or out or something in between, the whole system is going to crush anyone who's caught up. It's what we refer to as the law. The law. Enter Jesus. John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. It says in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's exploring Sneechology, and he's lamenting the fact that there is no hope in this system of in and out, and, and who has the right identity marker, and, and who is the gatekeeper, and, and eventually he ends Chapter 7, by exclaiming, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And he says elsewhere, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin he condemned sin in the flesh now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code Jesus breaks the system. He fulfills the law. And he declares, I am the gate. Not only am I the gate, I am the gatekeeper. In fact, no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. And he makes a way, a new way. But there's still a great tension that exists in the church. The thing that I love about Nehemiah 13, as like shocking and slightly depressing as the whole scene is, it's a great reminder. I think about our, our church, I think about the, the church, and how oftentimes do you see it? Perhaps even personally find yourself getting caught up in this sort of system of who's in, who's out, and who's the gatekeeper. Who gets to decide who's worthy to be in or out. And these identity markers, you know, in the book of Galatians, virtually the whole book is about the Apostle Paul, who we just read from extensively, arguing that what was once the identity marker that signified that you're in, God's done away with. He's fulfilled that old way. He's broke the system and now he's asking us to come in and know him and obey him and trust him and walk with him in the new way of the Spirit. And so he's arguing over and over in this letter that he wrote to a whole group of churches in the region of Galatia. The old identity marker of circumcision doesn't apply anymore. It did, but in fact, it was actually just, it was pointing us, it was preparing us for, it was meant to actually foreshadow this greater, more eternal work, better work that God was always planning on doing in Jesus. But how oftentimes do we look around and we still gravitate towards these identity markers? There's always a Sylvester, what was his name? a good name Sylvester McMonkey McBean there's always a Sylvester McMonkey McBean waiting to exploit the moment to come up with a new sort of identity marker the self-proclaimed gatekeeper who says you know I'll decide who's in and who gets left out you know what I hate? It's kind of strong, it just came out. You know what I hate? You know what I hate so badly? Masks. 
hate them. Hate them so bad. You know why I hate them? It's not because they're uncomfortable and they make me sweat. Um, it's what they signify. Uh, forgive me if this feels just a bit too like my personal opinion or some sort of little political stance, but I'm just like observing the world. And I realized the thing that's so difficult about so much of life right now, including mass, it's become an identity marker. It means something. It divides people. It divides the church. And I get that there's a whole debate out there about like, well, yeah, but they're, they're wise and loving. No, I get that. I get that. I've also read those things. I'm not a doctor, so I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the conclusion is on like what is the best policy, which state has it right, which governor is a lunatic or vice versa. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's too complicated for me. I know that my dad was in the hospital with COVID. I didn't like that. And so that made it really personal. But this is what I do know. When I read scripture and then I hold it up to our present day reality, I'm like, oh my goodness. These are identity markers. The enemy of our soul could care less whether or not I wear a mask or not. He could care less whether or not I die or not. Did you know the enemy is not so much concerned whether or not I live or die another day. The enemy wants to see his kingdom of darkness overcome God's kingdom of light. He wants to divide people eternally. Are we aware of this scheme, this reality? playing right into the hands of the enemy and allowing the Sylvester McMonkey McBeans among us spin and spin and leverage and exploit these things and just rip the family of God apart so that I stand over here and I say, no, you're out. I'm in. I control the gate. You want to get really controversial? That's not even controversial. I mean, come on. Okay, I'm going to say something really controversial in a second. There's a real tension here. There's still standards of purity and holiness in the family of God. Jesus didn't, like, tear down the gate. He said, I am the gate. I'm the gatekeeper. But once you're in the family of God, there's still standards of purity. The standards are actually astronomically higher than anything we read of in the Old Testament. You know that. So when Matthew or, or Jesus in Matthew 5 is preaching the Beatitudes, he says, you've, you've, you've heard it said that if you, he says, don't kill people and don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you even do that in your heart, if you lust after a person in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you're hating your brother or sister in your heart, you're committing murder against them. If you do not forgive, I won't forgive you. Period. The standard is astronomically higher in the family of God, in Jesus Christ. So it's not like all of a sudden it's like, yay, great, I can do whatever I want because Jesus has paid it all. Therefore, just grace cancels out any, any stupid, rebellious, sinful attitude that I might have or, or thing I might do. No, it's much, much higher. 
the price to get in. How do we get in the temple? How do we get in the family of God? What do we bring to the gate? Whatever you bring, the price is that. Jesus demands that we come in with empty hands. Whatever thing that you're clinging to that you once found hope in, that you built an identity around, when you come to the gate, Jesus says, what do you got? Let's see it. Empty your pockets. What do you got? What's your idol? What foundation have you been building on? I want it. Give it to me. The only way in is empty hands. I want everything because I want to fill you up. The identity marker, what's the identity marker? We're talking about the new way of the spirit. Not circumcision, praise the Lord. It's like who even cares, right? It's a new kind of circumcision. Circumcision of the heart. It's no longer external, it's something inside. It's when the person gets filled the very spirit of God. And God begins to cut away the hard stuff around our hearts. God makes our hearts soft. He begins to teach us to be loved and to love like he does. Jesus is still the gate. We only get in through him, which means he's not only the one who keeps people out but he also protects us I felt like the the Holy Spirit was wanting to remind me um, while we were worshiping that guys King Jesus protects us in a time where it feels like man I, I just I feel overwhelmed I wonder where this is all going who's gonna win Jesus protects us so in John 10, 9, he said, I am the gate. But in John 10, 10, he says that I am the good shepherd. The thief comes to still, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life. So he protects us from the thief. He protects us from the wolves. He protects us from anything that would want to tear us apart. He is the gate that protects us. And where does that leave us? Do we get to be gatekeepers? Nope, it never goes good. Ever, ever, ever. As soon as I get to be the gatekeeper, I will always default, <coughs> relapse to sneechology. I'll think, well, I have all the right answers. I'm better than you. I've got it figured out. I'll decide who's in and who gets to be out. Jesus gets to decide only and always. He's the gate. He's the gatekeeper. Me, I get to be the guide. I get to be the one who goes out and says, you've got to come and meet the one. You've got to come and meet the one who told me everything about myself and who has given me a reason to live. You've got to come and meet the one. You've got to taste and see for yourself. I get to go out and recruit people to meet Jesus 
My job is to open the door and say, Jesus, I've got another one for you. Oh, this one's really messed up. He was all, he's almost as bad as I was. Is there grace for him? And we bring people to Jesus. But as soon as we begin to construct these identity markers that will say, you, you're out, but you're in because you've got the star. You've got the something figured out. Guys, the whole thing begins to... It's, it's a weight that no human being can hold up. It's riddled with shame. It feels like somehow if I step out of line, if I get it wrong, if I slightly believe the wrong thing, then God's grace is just going to run out. So here's the controversial thing. You know the email that I dread getting? You know the, and I get it. I get it quite a bit, actually. The email I dread getting, and I probably get it about maybe once every couple of weeks, it's the email that says, I found Grace City Online, looks like a great church, but I have a couple of questions. It might be a good fit, but I have a couple of questions. And there's usually three or four questions, but one of them is always, where does Grace City stand on people in the LGBTQ plus community? That's the question that I dread getting. And I get it a lot. I've been nervous to even bring it up on a Sunday morning. For the same reason, it, I, I feel anxious every time I get the email. I desperately want to be a church that doesn't create these, um, these barriers that keep some people out while others get to come in and be a part for, for any reason other than just Jesus himself. The question is such an important question because we're just... Our sexualities, whether you, you, you like this or not, whether you agree with this or not, I'm going to say it anyways, our sexualities are absolutely an integral part of our identities. It's actually biblical. From the very outset, when God created them man and woman, it's, it's, a, it's a physical description. He said, I created them male and female. Okay, that has nothing to do with like one likes blue and the other red or some arbitrary manufactured gender category. He's talking about one had a penis and one had a vagina. That's, that's, that's where Genesis 1 starts. Oh, now we're getting controversial. It's such a difficult question because it's it wants to sort of move the conversation over to an issue of identity markers. I want to just say to the person, look, come, just come. Doors unlocked. You are welcome. Now, at some point, whether it's your sexuality or like a thousand different other things, Jesus is going to ask you to surrender that. 
Now, it just so happens when it comes to our sexuality, like there's virtually nothing more personal than that, I think. So that's exceptionally hard, exceptionally hard, particularly if you just think for one second about the history of how the church, our church, us, has treated people in that community for decades and decades and decades. And you wonder why people are mad and hurt and pushing back, rightly so? Wake up. We've not loved well for a long, long time. But the question still it moves the conversation over to, this is my identity marker. Am I in or am I out? And it's not the conversation we should be having. It's not the conversation I want to have. I want to talk about anything and everything. Anything goes. You want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. But you're in. You're in. You come with whatever you've got. Wherever you're coming from, whatever your starting point is, whoever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever identity you're working with now at this moment, come and see. Come and meet the one. Just come and experience his love for you. And let's walk together. Let's walk together. Let's figure this out together. But at some point, you're going to have to repent, just like me. It doesn't matter what it is, whatever you come with. And it's not just a one-time deal. It's not just to get in. You get in as long as you're willing to empty your hands. But eventually, we sit down together and say, well, now let's see if we can't figure this out. Let's figure out our identity. Let's figure out, forget about sexuality for a second. Let's talk about the, the, um, the greed issue that is just rampant in our society and our church. You want to talk about idolatrous identities that are just off the charts in the church, in this city, in our country. It's our idol. It's our identity. And we cling to it as if it was life itself. And it's greed. And it's sin. And Jesus will confront us aggressively. What about the, the couple? The heterosexual couple that's having sex. Let's say enjoying sex with each other outside of marriage. When I read the scriptures, it seems very, very plain to me that's sin that's sin at some point we come to Jesus and he says look at forget about the identity markers I want to give you one marker it's called the spirit of adoption I love you you're mine you're in my family I've died for you I've spilt blood for you now come home that's it. That's how you get in, and that's your identity marker. Now, once you're in, oh my goodness, now it gets crazy. We get to talk about everything, everything. There's nothing off limits. 
And Jesus wants to get right up in the, all the awkward, hard, painful, like non-PC stuff and say, nope, no, that's, that's, not, that's not my vision. That's not how I want you to view your body. That's not how I want you to enjoy your sexuality. That's not what I want you to do with your money. That's not the attitude I want you to have toward those out there. I want to teach you how to walk in life, but it's going to require that you die to yourself and surrender everything to me. But none of this nonsense about you've got to have the right identity marker in order to come into the family. That's not the conversation we ever, ever want to have. Everyone's welcome. Jesus is the gate and the gatekeeper. The only requirement to get in is empty hands. A willingness to say, Jesus, I surrender. As it turns out, you might empty your hands only to find out, like, what is this in my back pocket? Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. We'll just keep that tucked away. And we'll realize, man, I got, I got idols hidden for days. Stuff buried so deep in my soul, it's going to take a lifetime to unearth it all. Oh, and Jesus will do it. He's great. He's so good. He's so relentless. We go on this journey together. And he teaches us, this is what it looks like to take up your cross and die to yourself today. This is how I want you to experience new life, an identity that is rooted deeply in who I am, in my love for you, in my standards for life, abundant life. Like really living kind of life. Amen.